All right, well, let's turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation. The word means the unveiling, the revealing. Um, that literally means that you know, Jesus has, has wants us to know things. It says in the first chapter that, that Jesus chose to show what will take place in the last of the last days. And that's really, as you see in, in chapter 1, that he's revealing and making known. And so as we've worked through on, on Wednesday night, we covered uh, Revelation 6. It's the sealed judgments. Those are opened. The great tribulation period, that judgment time has begun. Now, the church, as you understand, has been removed prior to chapter 6, most likely right around chapter 4, verse 2. John's going to share his experience of the things that take place after that. He was taken up into heaven in chapter 4. In the spirit, he was able to, he was moved forward in time, if you would. And he's seen the throne room, and he had some phenomenal observations and declarations about what was happening there. And in chapter 5, we got a greater glimpse and insight into his glory. And as chapter 5 ended and chapter 6 began, the judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world was opened up. It was seals. And so we've seen the first six seals take place. In chapter 6, we've seen these judgments carried out by the four horsemen. Maybe you've heard the term or the reference of four horsemen of the apocalypse. And that, that chapter is where that comes from. In, in verses 9 through 11, we, hear, we read about the cry of the martyrs, the people who come to Christ during the tribulation. We're going to see a glimpse of that here tonight or today as well. And then as we continue through chapter 6, we've seen in verses 12 through 17, earthquakes and eruptions, tremors, asteroids, meteorites, darkness, cataclysmic turmoil greater than anything that has ever happened. And in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this world turmoil that's taken place, everything taken on is happening, there's turmoil, there's death, people still will not repent. Glance with me, if you would, back in chapter 6 at verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains, rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So here we see the people on earth that chose not to receive Christ, that had rejected Christ, now experiencing this wrath that God said would be poured out, and they won't even repent. They would rather die and be crushed by rocks than recognize what they say. This is the wrath of the Lamb. This is God's judgment upon us. And they wouldn't turn. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, a lot of people, we're going to see here in a little bit, a lot of people will come to Christ during the tribulation period. But a lot will not. A lot will die. A lot, will, a lot of people will refuse to repent. As we look into chapter 7, realizing that it's... A time now is it's kind of like a pause. There's this chapter, the six seals unveiled, and then there's a pause before the seventh. Because as we live now in the times of the Gentiles, here we're still in the church age, and we're looking forward to what we're reading about in chapter 7. We're, we're awaiting the rapture of the church chronologically. That's the next significant event I think we'll see that will then usher in this next 
element of God's timeline. When the last Gentile of this age is saved, the rapture of the church will take place. God will then redirect his full attention upon the Jews. With the church up in heaven, God will equip 144,000 Jews to be his evangelists to people on the earth during the great tribulation period. Let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, and see what we can glean and gain from that. After these things, reference in chapter 6. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Let's stop right there, and let's go back and just kind of break this first portion down and see what's there. We know the four points of the compass, I hope. That's really what's been conveyed in verse 1. Some have critiqued or criticized the Bible as, you know, basically they see this, oh, they believe in the flat earth like many people did, but now we know otherwise. That's not true. Job even speaks of the, the sphere of the roundness of the earth, other passages of Scripture. It's just conveying the four quadrants of the earth, the four points of the, of, the, of the compass. So these winds were held back. Now, the point is, the wind will not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. As pleasant as that may seem to someone from Mountain Home, or Minot, North Dakota, or Wyoming, it will not be pleasant at all. See, one simple thing we know, air movement is essential for what you might want to call the water cycle, where water evaporates, forms into clouds. The clouds are carried inland from these oceans and seas and and large bodies of water. And then as it comes inland, it condenses and it falls. We have rain. Without wind, that process is interrupted. Agreed? It doesn't move. And so it's really fascinating because here there's this calm, and I don't know how long it lasts could be for a while. Verse 2 tells us there was another angel. So John, in being present and describing this futuristic scene, which I think we'll be at, he's saying, okay, well, there's this happening. He just described the start of the tribulation period, the first six seals. And then he's saying, okay, and then there's this, this other thing was taking place, and his attention was redirected you know, from looking and seeing here on earth what's happening to what's happening there in the throne, in, in the heavenlies, if you would. Another angel, John notes that he had the seal of the living God. This angel is like an announcer declaring or setting the stage for a coming event. This is what's going to happen next, and these things are going to take place. Now, notice it says in verse 3 and 4 that this angel instructs these other four creatures... Do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then he tells us it's going to be these 144,000 Jews will receive a seal, a special mark. And then after they were sealed, then there'll be this, the winds will be released and the process will continue, so to speak. But let's consider this. What is the seal that these servants receive? In Revelation chapter 14, 
We have more description. I'm just going to read verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So, you know, have you ever tried to figure out what the seal looks like? Come on. I mean, hopefully you have. I know you've thought of another mark on a forehead or an arm, hand. But I think, man, what, what, is it, what is it like? I mean, we know that. It's got the Father's name. I believe that we could see it as an identifiable mark of God on their foreheads. I believe his name is spelled out on, in that mark. And I honestly, I'd lean towards and consider it's possible that the individual's name is artistically intertwined within that mark. Why would I consider that? Well, I would consider that because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, speaking to the, the, the church, this one is addressing some issues there in Pergamos, in verse 17, says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of them hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, catch this, on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So God has a new name for each one of us, a, a very personal, very, I think, powerful, intimate name conveying the relationship. He knows all things. He knows you in ways no one knows you. So I kind of wonder, is that name going to be a part of that? Because we can also consider uh, Revelation 3, verse 12. And it speaks there in the latter part of the, the passage. And I will write on him my new name. So that's speaking to the church, to the individuals in the church. So I'm not making a new doctrine. I'm just telling you, man, the Bible shows us things. And you've got to go, wow, that's very curious what this mark will look like and how it will be seen. But it's a mark for the believers, the seal, the mark, is on every one of these special Jewish evangelists who will witness and declare the truth of God during the tribulation period. So what's interesting about their responsibility, their role, what previously took place primarily through the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will now take place by these 144,000 who are empowered by the Holy Spirit for this seven-year tribulation period. Because, see, we're not there. And maybe you realize and remember from 1 Thessalonians that the restraining force had to be removed before the Antichrist was really able to come into power in declaration. Well, that restraining force... I think is clearly presented to us is the, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit through the purposes he assigned to the church. In other words, through the church. Because you and I, we are to tell of the love we've received. We're to live out now this love we've been given, making it known and speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing that with people. And so the restraining force in many ways is actually the church. Because that's what God has accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and you see what I'm saying? But now it's been removed, the rapture. So the Holy Spirit isn't removed at the rapture of the church because the Holy Spirit is God and omnipresence, always there. But the role of the Holy Spirit will shift. Accomplishing God's purposes through the church, now accomplishing it through as he redirects his attention to, to Israel. You don't have to change and make Israel the church and church Israel. You don't have to do that. You can just receive it as it says. And so now these 144,000 evangelists empowered by the Holy Spirit are going to be the ones who declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
There'll be a great harvest during the tribulation, but there'll also be great tragedy and death. People will still reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, as I referenced chapter 6, verses 15 and 17, they want the rocks to fall down. They don't want to repent. They don't want to receive. You may know of another seal spoken of in Revelation 13, I think in chapter 16, 19, a little bit there in chapter 20. The mark or the seal of the Antichrist. The mark of the beast, I refer to it as the seal of Satan. He's always a dupl- not even a duplicator. He, sh- he just tries to mimic and copy what God does and distract and deceive people. You don't want to be around when that mark is promoted and required because that means you're here on earth and not with the church in heaven. And that mark is not a good thing. Maybe some of you know of it. There's a number assigned to it, 666. There's descriptions of it. At that season, probably, maybe even at the start of the tribulation, definitely the last three and a half years, You'll have to have that mark to buy and sell. Well, you think, well, that's not bad. It's like a credit card. Well, no, it's a little worse. Actually, because having that mark means you chose to worship the Antichrist. It's not the, the economic transactions that are the problem. It's, it's the agreement to worship the Antichrist, the false Christ. And so that's why you know, we see frequently throughout Scripture, Satan always tries to mimic God with something lesser. And, you know, it's the same thing as we get into this. Now, let's continue on here with our study as we work through Revelation chapter 7. In chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, and I won't repeat everything. I'm just going to catch what we see to be the element in a sense. That all, it's all important. But it, we're told that these 44,000 were sealed. And this is the breakdown, 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes, from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, picking up in verse 6, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, verse 8, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin. This is, this is the word that, that, who they're from. That, that's the ones that make up this uh, 144,000. And we know it to be from the tribe of, of Israel. We were told that. Do you realize that the tribes of Israel, the lists of those tribes, it was like 29 times in the Bible? And it's not always the same guys, same group. Did you know that? Because there's different, there's actually 13 tribes if you consider Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, as well as the sons of Jacob. And you start breaking it down. And it's interesting because you consider, well, there's a different reason that God puts each list and the reason he may leave one out and insert another one differently. Like, for example, here, the tribe of Dan is not listed in this list, which is normally in all the other lists. Probably due to the fact that they promoted and misled Israel, leading many into idolatry. And God said, if you do that, you'll pay. So I just say that because we're reading this text, and some people have said, well, okay, so the 144,000, that would be this group of people. Well, the 144,000, some cultic activities are like, that's only us. That's only our group. And others will say it's this and it's those. You really don't have to work that hard. You really don't. When you're reading the Bible, let it say what it says. You don't have to read anything extra into this text. It's numeric, it's specific, and it's accurate. 144,000 Jewish servants of the Lamb, 12,000 from each tribe listed. 
I know I'm not going to get into it because I just don't see life that complicated. Well, you know, it could mean this. Well, actually what it could mean is what it says. And the reason I say that, it doesn't give you liberty to change your rules of interpretation. It doesn't say, well, okay, so there's these 144,000-ish and they're like, they're like the tribes of Israel. Great, you have freedom to broaden your interpretation and your understanding, try to get some understanding. But we weren't given that freedom on this one. This specific, am I reading the same thing you're reading? It literally tells us why work so hard. You can do other things. Don't mess with this. Just see it? Okay, that's what it is. So, so therefore, we're moving on to verse 9. After these things, now we have John sharing the next thing that come, uh, he's experiencing in this futuristic event. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Who's this great multitude? Well, we don't need to pause and speculate. We can read on and realize, and we'll do that here in a moment. I mentioned that principle because many times this is the case in reading the Bible. Was you're reading and you get to a portion like, okay, well, who is this? Read on. I have a way, a little, somebody shared with me years ago, I love it, a way of retaining this principle. I want to see what the Bible has to say. I, I kind of I want to have good vision. You know how you have 20-20 vision, if you would? Read the 20 verses before and the 20 verses after. And when you do that, you catch the context. The content conveys to you what you need to know many times. That's true on doctrine. That's true on many times in history. You'll see it even in prophecy. And I'm not dogmatic about only 20, even not 21. You see what's conveyed. Catch it in its totality. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let Let the truth from within Genesis to Revelation be the truth that reveals the inner truth and the different truths. You don't have to go find some other source. Just read it and roll with it. Okay, well, that's this. And so I want to do, we do want to take a note, though, from this before we move on. Salvation belongs to our God. If you have a New King James, and it probably many of them in other translations too, the word belongs is in italics. What that conveys to you in many formats is that that word was inserted to help understand the meaning. So it may help a little bit, but just remember, salvation is from God. It belongs to him. It came from him. He owns it. He he extends it. And what I love here is we see something else, I believe, in glancing and thinking through this and considering the content and what's happening, as we've seen from chapter 4, verse 1, to this point. We have the triunity of God. Have you ever had somebody say, Trinity's not even in the Bible. That word was made up of the Nicene Creed, and they come to the Council of Nicaea, and then they kind of go all busybody on you. And you're like, what? Okay, I'll, I'll go with you with you say the Trinity wasn't there. But that conveys, ultimately, simplicity, simply the triunity of God. The triunity of God reveals three, one God revealed in three persons. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you know John is in the Spirit? I believe the Holy Spirit has led him to this point. And I believe it's easy to see his, the Holy Spirit's presence. The Father's name is written on the servants. 
And the lamb is the co-owner of salvation. We have the triunity here in this text. And you'll find it when you start looking and to see what was revealed in Scripture, you'll start seeing that that's conveyed throughout the, the entire Bible. We need to understand the very nature of God and the role that God brings to us in the sense of what he brings to us, salvation, and how we can come to know him. Moving on to verse 11, the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the, throne and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Verse 12 saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we have here the angels and the elders and other angelic beings declaring what a glorious thing it is to be before God, the nature of God, the characteristics of God. What a glorious sound this, this has to be for, for us to hear and honestly to participate in. This amazing declaration. I can't even imagine the acoustics and how everything's perfect to, to the ear and how everything will be fantastic. Because here, one thing we'll want to remember will not be there. And that's the flesh, these sinful desires, these expressions of pride, these distractions of life, the various things of guilt and shame that we carry and we try to work through as we continue to seek Jesus, we continue to go before his presence and you and I in this realm. But when you're removed from here, you don't have those things. And worship will be in a purified state, so to speak. Because you know what I'm talking about. I mean, there's just times you're, things in your head, maybe you're trying to sing along with the song, you're like, ah, Man, I just ponder and I anticipate, I look forward to worship, that expression, when none of those things are there, when we're able to be like this heavenly realm, like this whole thing. I think, I don't know that we'll participate in this one because it's early on. I think we might be doing a lot of this. <laughs> just in awe, awestruck at what is happening and what we're around, just phenomenal. Let's continue on because that's where we're going to see who this multitude that is uh, gathered together, we're told about there in verse 9. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and, and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, I'll pause right there, who is this great multitude? Hmm, see, the question is asked of John. It would make sense for John to say, who is this? But interestingly enough, if you caught it in glancing at it, it said one of the elders answered, and we're not told that John asked a question. You ever had things in your heart you're pondering? Is it possible God knows your question before you present it to him? Is it possible he engages with you like he did with John? Because I believe this question is asked of John. This is to provoke John into learning. Jesus does this to all of us. I'm confident in that. He provokes us to learning. He, he stirs up something from your daily reading. As you ponder the truths of God, the person of God, the ways of God, the work of God, the word of God, as you're wondering about all these things, he says, you have this question come up like, well, how come that? And, and I don't know that it's really our mind ex exclusively. Sometimes he provokes this question. So, okay, well, what about this, Dan? Well, I don't know. 
And they're sometimes really deep and hard questions. Why did this happen? How come those things took place? And he provokes us to learning. You know, there's sometimes wonderful, powerful, pleasant things like we can even see in this scene are taking place and we're not learning all that we can learn from it, all that we need to learn. And God will help us to stop and look around. And we see it happening here. John is, is probed, provoked. Who, I don't know who it is. And notice it was, he wasn't just left. Well, go study, figure it out. And said, hey, who do you think this is? I have no clue. Well, let me tell you. He goes on to say in verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These group of people were told here, they're martyred during the tribulation period. They, they died for what they believed. They stood and they... they, they, they you know, they, they were killed. How did they hear the news? I mean, how did they come to Christ when the church is removed? Okay, you have the 144,000. You know, I believe it's possible that many, probable that many, will come to Christ because of the literature you left behind. See, because of the certain letters that are sent. I know people that have sent letters, sent not, they've wrote letters to their loved ones declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing their own conversion experience, speaking of what God had done in their lives, because that's personal. They have a relationship with that person. And they put it away. So that when those who are left behind come pilferage into place trying to survive, guess what they come across? Spiritual truth. So I believe that happens. I believe some of the resources and materials that's produced by the church will be used by a tool. But primarily, we have to see mostly, most will come from the message of the 144,000 as well as the two witnesses, which will be introduced when we get to chapter 11. We do know, though, in verse 16, it says that they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun will not beat down on them or strike them, nor any heat. They're removed from the tribulation. Remember when we started in verse 1? The wind was stopped for a period. There's other elements that would come along with that. Famine, agreed, because vegetation's not going to grow very well. Drought, because you don't have moisture. Record heat, blazing sun. Do you see what we, we see here? And I'm not saying that's the only application, but it helps us see, you know, they will be removed from the tribulation. And I want you to realize that too. You know, we will be removed at the rapture. God will take us from these trials and struggles and pain and suffering. And notice what we're told in verse 17. The lamb who is in the midst of this throne will shepherd them. See, Jesus, we're told, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same. Now, some go, oh, gosh, I have a struggle with that. I read the Old Testament, and I read the New Testament. One may be a fulfillment. There seems to be one kind of the irate, judgmental God here of the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes along, calms him down, and gives love to everybody. Paraphrase, simplified. That's really how some people kind of process. It's not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. His emphasis 
his attributes, his love will be expressed differently, but he does not change. We can see a real simple picture. God has designed the family. He put, uh, put it in a very specific and, and a very uh, perfect order, if you would. If your child receives from you not broccoli, nor peas and, and carrots, but you put a hold on the family nutritional guidelines. It's like, you guys want to have cookie and frosting for dinner? Like, whoo, I love my dad. Whoo, this is awesome. I love, man. And it's just, a, you know, it's a gracious you know, deal. But three days later, that same loving person takes away your privileges because you wouldn't do what you were supposed to do. What a jerk. What a tyrant. My, I can't, uh, you see what happened? I don't think the parents stopped loving because they enforced things that will help them deal with authority, will help a child deal with responsibility, and to live as a, as a citizen in an ordered society. That parent didn't stop loving the child today. But here it said this person's love, the parent's loving, and here, you see, there's a point where God is the same. His expression is going to be different, not only based on our actions, but based on the season. And so that's what we see. He's the same. You know, what he is doing in the future, he's doing in the present. For the lamb who's in the midst of them, midst of the throne, will shepherd them. Did you catch that? The shepherd is the lamb who leads the sheep. And what does the shepherd do? You, you understand probably from Psalm 23. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For what reason? For you are with me. See, they're, they're encouraged. They went through this terrible time, this tribulation, but they're reminded that the, the, the lamb will lead them. He will lead them. And he will lead them, it says, it goes on to say, you'll notice there in verse 17, to living fountains of water. Why not just water? Why so descriptive? Why all the adjectives? Why does it have to be said that way? Have you ever seen what... Stale, stagnant, stinky, dead sea waters like? It's not the same. Here he's speaking of, he will lead them to the living fountains of water. There's a really interesting New Testament parallel picture to this. In John chapter 7, Jesus speaking of this relationship we have with him and what we can have, and when we're born again, born of the Spirit, then what will gush forth from us would be torrents of living water. He goes on to tell us in John chapter 7 that that torrent, those torrents, are, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit who would indwell us. So here we see, even in here, that the Holy Spirit will lead them, will be a, a source of refreshment. We're told in Acts chapter 3 verse 19, the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. We see this and we go, wow, amazing. We're told in John 14 through 16, that the role of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would be a parakletos, one who would come alongside, it would be just like Jesus to them, so to speak, who would comfort them and help them. And it says that it would bring to their remembrance the things that he has said and guide us into all truth. So here we see here, even then, he's saying, hey, listen, this is how it's going to roll even in heaven. This, these fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's past, present, and future. That even now, he wipes away the tears from our eyes. The struggle, the trial, the adversity. We're not living in Ukraine, but some of you are going through really, really horrible time. 
a really difficult time, relationally, moving forward in life, different things. And he, we, I want you to know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wipes away our tears. He knows what we're going through. He is, he is the one that carries us, even though we have a hard time drawing near him sometimes. He is the one who wipes away the tears. Now that part will change, according to Revelation 22, when there is a new earth and a new heaven. Former things have passed away. No longer will there be death, no sorrow, no crying. I'm just going out on a limb. If you're not crying, you don't have tears to wipe away because that will change in the new heaven and the new earth. Until then, he is the one who carries us. I hope you can embrace that. Yes, this is a time to come, but notice what he's saying. Even when you go through great tribulation and difficulty, I am there with you. I'll wipe away your tears. I'll be present. Let's wrap it up. Let me give you some things out of this particular book so far. Revelation, the unveiling, the revealing. First thing I would encourage you, learn the order Remember the purpose. What is the purpose of this book? To ex- excite us and stimulate us about this dramatic, phenomenal time to come? Well, not exactly. That's not the purpose. That's a result, but it's not the purpose. The purpose is to know Jesus and to know what he's revealed to us. That's chapters 1 through 3. To know Jesus and to know what he's telling us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. John was receiving from the angel, well, Jesus had to, he wanted to show them the things to come, show us. So learn the order and remember the purpose. Second part, know who you are. See, you got to know who you are because in Christ, you're saved from the wrath to come. And that's the only means by which you can be saved from the wrath to come. All roads do not lead to heaven. There's only one way by which a man can be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you got to know who you are, because in Christ you're saved from this wrath to come. Or you have separated yourself from his invitation. Some would say it in this fashion. Eh, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I don't mind the teaching, music was good, pastor was a little weird, but you know, it's just not my thing right now. I'm just kind of, you know, I'll, I'll think about it. I'll, I'll consider this Christian church Jesus stuff later. That humorous, pleasant, whatever passive decision was a decision to reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. The delay was a denial of the work of God in your life. And it doesn't sound so bad, does it? I'm, well, I'm just going to wait. I still got some things to work out. Uh, no, you don't. You, you, the Bible says to repent, to turn from what you're doing and turn to Christ. There's no point of saying, well, it's just, I'm going to sort some things out. What day will the rapture take place? We have no clue. We could probably do some Calvary calisthenics, stand up and jump up and down, do rapture practice. But in reality, we don't know when it's going to take place. So why put on hold what you have to deal with? I'm just being logical in this sense of how relationship with Jesus Christ is an invitation. Because that decision affects the third point. Know where you are when the judgment of wrath of God is poured out. When you're reading Matthew 24, when you're reading Revelation, you want to know the order. You want to know where you are. I know where I'll be because of the grace of God, because of the forgiveness of God, because I'm born again according to his promises. I will not be on the earth when the rapture or when the, tri- the tribulation begins and continues. I will be removed with m- many of you, most of you, all of you, I hope, and I will be removed, will be in heaven. 
When this wrath, because he's not pouring his wrath out on his bride. This is the wrath of the lamb, and we are not appointed to wrath. So therefore, know where you're going to be. And you're either in heaven or in judgment. Here on earth, experiencing his wrath, which was your choice. I think that's one of the most terrible realities to someone going through the tribulation period is the knowledge that they chose it for themselves. You know, it's one thing to go through a hard time, but it's another thing to know you made it worse, right? We've experienced that. And so, man, don't go that route. Let me just say the fourth point. So the first one I mentioned, learn the order, remember the purpose in regards to Revelation. Second point, I encourage you to hold on to, know who you are. In Christ, if you're not, deal with that. Know where you are when the judgment comes, because that's going to give you a lot of peace and understanding to the word. Fourth thing, know how to follow the shepherd. Know how to follow the shepherd now more than any other time. When it's risky and dangerous, and there's more things around and a lot of uncertainty, that's when you stay close to your security. You ever, that's graphic. Eh. (laughs) You ever seen a lion eat an impala? You ever see predators go after their prey? They scatter them first. They get them away from any sense of protection. Maybe the protection of that species is to mass together and stay tight. But if a predator can distract them, they can pick them off like crazy. There's There's a spiritual parallel there. I think you understand Know how to follow the shepherd. He is the one. There's times you may not feel like certain things, but stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. In practice, in correction, let him lead you. Know who he is. I want to invite the worship team to come back up as you and I turn to Romans 13. In Romans 13, we have a very practical exhortation Um, written, obviously, to the church there in Rome, preserved for every Christian throughout history to to the rapture of the church. In Romans chapter 13, if you'd stand with me, I'm going to read that and then go right into prayer, praying some of these principles. But I, I, I pray and ask first that your heart would be ready to receive what's embedded in here in relation to the study we've just had. In Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in envy and strife, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. God, we praise you this morning. We praise you for your presence. We praise you for your promises. We praise you for your instruction. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us the things to come. You teach us the things that currently are. And Lord, I just pray that each one of us would recognize your calling, your invitation. For those that know you, that we would walk properly according to your direction, according to your word. Not giving in to the desires and the temptations and the distractions of this life. But affixing our eyes upon you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, give us the strength an added measure of faith, whatever may be needed, we would request from you, God. 
poured into us. Teach us how to receive and respond to your gifting that we do not put on the ways of this world, but we adorn ourselves with your presence. For anybody who's here and you just don't have that confidence that you're born again, that you're born of the Spirit, it's a decision you, you need to recognize the urgency and the importance of. And I would ask, well, I'm not sure what you're waiting for. Simply acknowledge that you need forgiveness from God. Simply acknowledge that you have sinned against Him and ask of Him to forgive you. It would go similar to this. God, I, I know I don't, I, don't, I don't understand all this stuff entirely, but I, I, I get it. I know, I know the guilt of what I've done. I, I know things about me that only you would know, no one else would know. I know that I've sinned and done things against you, God. And so, Jesus, I believe that you are who you tell, tell us you are, who you say you are, that you're the Savior to the world, that you came and died for my sins, that you rose from the dead, conquering death and hell, and that you offer me your victory. And so I would ask God, forgive me for my sins. I turn to you and I ask you to show me how to live this new life that you give me. I turn from the way I was living and I'm not even sure what to let go of and what to hold on to. But I would ask God that you would teach me as your child, an infant child in the spirit, you would teach me your ways, God. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for teaching me. God, may that continue to be the, the cry of all of us, that you would teach us, that you would be our shepherd, that you would make us to lie down in green pasture. You would lead us beside still waters. Oh, Lord, we know that you'll protect us and lead us. And so we sing this last song to you, God, with thankfulness, with joy, with expectation and confidence that you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen.